Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Melissa Stein, Ed Falco, Kevin Young, Celestnik, and Roxanne Gay. You will now hear Melissa Stein provide introductions. We're going to get started. Um, hey, everybody. How are you holding up on the last day of the conference? You look, you still look like you have some energy. That's pretty good. <laughs> Take a deep breath because you're in the home stretch. Um, uh, you'll notice that uh, neither Susan Orlean nor uh, Luis Alberto Urea is up here. We are, um, neither of them can make it to AWP. Uh, we are super excited to have Ed Falco and Roxanne Gay. It's a rock star, all star panel. Yes. <laughs> And I'm Melissa Stein, your friendly neighborhood moderator. So over the last few weeks, I've uh, Googled writer's voice, as one does when preparing for a panel, one's moderating, and uh, I got hits like this. Writer's voice, what it is and how to develop yours. How to discover your unique voice. 10 steps to revealing your writing voice. 25 things authors should know about finding their voice. Like, everybody wants this voice thing, it seems like. So one of my favorites is, the true voice of a writer is the nameless fire that burns inside, turning up the heat, licking at mind and heart until it becomes unbearable to wait even a single moment longer before putting pen to paper or fingertips to keyboard. Oh my God. Yeah, um, that's from a blog called Suddenly Jamie. And there's also plenty of contradictory info. The writer's voice is the expression of you, in capitals, you on the page. Your voice is all about honesty. It's the unfettered, non-derivative, unique conglomeration of your thoughts, feelings, passions, dreams, beliefs, fears, and attitudes coming through in every word you write. It's about peeling away the layers of your false self. Um, that's uh, Rochelle Gardner, who's a book agent. But the critical fact to remember, says Stephen Pressfield, is that the writer's voice is an act of artifice, uh, crafted by the professional to achieve a specific effect in a work of the imagination. It's not the real writer's voice, and if you try to find your own, you'll drive yourself crazy because you don't really exist. So, contradictory. So the last quote I'll read here is um, from Susan Orlean, who obviously is not here, but I'll read a quote from her so she'll be with us in the room. Sometimes you think you have a voice, um, but then it changes on you. And she says, to find your voice, unless you're a crazy genius, you work your way through a bunch of phases. At one point, I was committed to writing the tightest transitions in the world. Every sentence was locked in, like that kind of carpentry that dovetails a joint into the next. Now when I see that, I react so negatively. It seems so phony to me. As I got more confident and grown up, I felt that I could keep people paying attention or bring them back in, not just by locking each sentence to the next, but by moving more toward writing the way I talk. I began to think of writing as being like telling a story at a dinner party, learning to use timing, how much detail to tell, how much not to tell. I was moving towards something that was a little subtler, a little braver. So today we're going to be batting these ideas around um, about voice and style, like how we get them, whether we need them, how not to get stuck, and also how to negotiate pressures and expectations that we feel both inside and outside to sound a certain way or to write a certain way. 
or write certain things. Um, so our plan is that each of us is going to chat for like about five minutes about an aspect of this topic that's close to our hearts. And, um, and then we'll have a round-robin discussion, and then we'll take your questions for a while. So to make things easy, we go alphabetically. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, very unimaginative, but there you go. With and first name or last name? <laughs> oh, good one. Um, what do you think? Last name. Last name. Okay. So I'm going to... Full bios are... Full bios are... I can't figure out. Last name, Young. Uh, full bios are in the program, so I'll just do really quick publication um, publication bios. Um, Ed Falco's latest novel is Tough, so I forgot to update your bio. He's the author of three other novels and two short story collections. Did I forget something? That's good. That's good. Okay. Roxane Gay is the author of An Untamed State, Bad Feminist. So fun to say. Difficult Women and Hunger. Celeste Ng is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, Everything I Have Never Told You. And new book? New book. New book coming out. Little Fires Everywhere. Little Fires Everywhere. Um, Kevin Young is the author of 10 books of poetry and prose, most recently Book of Hours. And I'm Melissa Stein, author of Rough Honey and an as-yet-untitled book coming out next year from Copper Canyon Press. So we are going to start with Ed. Oh, I thought we were going to do it the opposite. Maybe. No. <laughs> Stand up so that I can see everybody. Yes. I'm going to talk real quickly about voice from a, a probably a little bit different perspective than the, the, the others are. Now, voice is one of those things that's different for different writers in different contexts. Um, Poets often talk about voice and fiction writers, too, as a way of finding a kind of signature, a kind of approach to language that is very much their own and is uniquely uh, their own. But fiction writers often talk about voice in terms of their characters' voices, which is something sort of the writer but not the writer. And every fiction writer knows this moment where a character comes to life, and it's as if, you, it's as if it's somebody animated but different from you on the page, and suddenly the story takes on a life of its own. You're always waiting for that to happen as a, as a writer. You're waiting for the story to develop its own, um, its own life and its own voices and something you can follow rather than make, rather than make happen. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what is that voice, that voice that seems so other, that seems to be almost like another person has suddenly appeared out of these characteristics that you've created and this situation that you've, uh, that you've created. Because it's not magic. It, it does feel magical. Again, and I know I'm talking to an audience of writers, so I know you know what I'm talking about. It feels, it feels magical when this voice starts speaking to you. But it's not. It's, it's, it's you somehow appearing in a voice that's not you. So it's me and it's, and it's not me. So what is my relationship to that other voice that suddenly appears um, on the page and takes over a story, takes over a narrative? The last time I did a panel with uh, Melissa, we were talking about violence in, in writing. And... I was talking about how an act of violence can sort of rip a hole in the fabric of your life. And one of the instruments for making yourself whole again, for putting yourself back together again, is writing. It can sort of stitch together that rip in the fabric. Um, and I talked about a novel that I was unsuccessfully trying to write since 2007 when there was a massacre at the school where I, where I teach and 33 students were killed. And I was trying to... I was trying to find a way to approach that story but I just never could every time I tried to write it it just was, was dead on the page and then about a year and a half ago I started writing kind of aimlessly not knowing where I was going 
about this night when all of the trees on my neighbor's property seemed like they were all falling over. It was a night of heavy rain and a nor'easter, and two of them fell onto my car and crushed the, uh, crushed the hood. That's the real world, and I use that as a starting place for the story. Uh, but in the writing of this, this character appeared named Angel Meso, and Angel came out into the kitchen and saw his neighbor's trees on his car and got furiously angry, got really pissed. And that voice was suddenly just completely alive to me and took over the story. And I realized very quickly that Angel was going to kill his neighbor and that Angel was really kind of crazy and getting crazier. And when I realized that, I realized that, oh, shit, now I'm writing this novel that I've been trying to write for years and I've kind of given up on writing. I was writing a novel from the perspective of the killer, from the perspective of the shooter, which is something I would have never dared attempt. It really happened entirely on its own. So where did that character come from? Because it's not magic. It's me somehow. I'm making it happen. So, But it doesn't feel like me. It feels like somebody entirely different from me. I'm not crazy. I'm not going to hurt anybody. But this guy was. So in order to, to explain that, I want to jump back a little bit to another story I wrote years earlier called Tulsa Snow. And in that story, there's a guy stuck in an airport, and he's at a coffee shop, and he's grounded. He's going to have to spend at least a night there in a snowstorm. And, and a very attractive young woman comes over and sits next to him. She's self-assured and confident, and she begins chatting with him. And at one point, she notices that he keeps picking up her language. Like if she says awesome, he says awesome. If she says dude, he says dude. So she looks at him and says, you have no character. And the moment she said that, this character came alive to me. This woman who is completely different from me has nothing. To, I mean, I just don't know how I, how I found this character. She really came alive on the page. And in the progress of that story, they wind up in a motel room together. And she shows him a picture of herself. And in this picture of herself, she looks completely different. She has her teeth are kind of misshapen. Her skin is sallow. Her hair is stringy. She looks nothing like the attractive young woman who he was talking to. And she explains that she has simply rebuilt herself, that she has had surgery and she's done well and paid attention to herself cosmetically and she sort of changed everything about her and at one really macabre moment in the story she takes her dentures out and puts them on the on the night table which which freaks him out so the story progresses things happen but what is my relationship to that character who seems so odd and so so strange to me so i'm not going to do i don't like confessional moments so i'm going to do this in the hypothetical what if this author was raised by an emotionally abusive parent? And what if this author had spent most of his life sort of rebuilding himself, sort of reconfiguring himself, making himself the person that he wanted to be? Well, then maybe this character who appeared out of nowhere, maybe she's an aspect of himself that he just hasn't been thinking about. And maybe through the story, there's a voice speaking to him about something he really should consider. So she's totally different. She's not him, but she is him. She is him in the way a story works, in the way a dream works. You experience something in the dream that seems to be created outside of yourself, but it's not magic. It is being created by, um, by you. 
So let's flip back to Angel Meso, my, my mass shooter. And let's imagine that the narrator of this novel, again, hypothetically, is kind of really pissed at the world. And some part of himself is furious at the world. But he has safely buried that part. And in a healthy way, put that part away, locked it off in a corner of himself. Well, Angel Meso then, this crazy person who's going to go on a violent spree and killing people, is connected to that violence that he keeps, that he keeps buried. And so then, magically, here I am writing about something I almost always wind up writing about, which is the violence in the human heart, especially in the male human heart. But I didn't start out there. I didn't intend to go there. This is something that just arose out of the voice of the character. And I would argue for that most writers, especially fiction writers and characters, this is probably why we keep writing, to listen to those voices that appear magically in our story and seem have to have nothing to do with us, but in fact are some aspect of us that we get to think about and we get to explore through the act of telling a story. Few things are worth the kind of alone time writers spend dreaming in front of a screen, in front of a screen or on front of a piece of paper. But that listening, that listening for those voices, maybe that's really the essential act of a writer. Okay, thank you. I'll just talk from here. I'm tall. Um, you know, I, I'm often asked about voice and how I use my voice and how I build my voice. And in re truth, I don't know that voice can be defined. And that's why we see so many definitions of it. But I also think it's this kind of thing that we obsess over and overcomplicate. Uh, my voice is simply who I am. And... I try to build my voice by being honest. And that's a difficult thing because I think by nature, people are liars. <laughs> we lie to ourselves. We lie to the ones we love. We lie about small things. We lie about big things. And so when I'm writing, I allow that to be the one opportunity where I'm going to tell the truth. A very good friend of mine, I was going on the job market several years ago, and I was nervous, and he was already a faculty member, and I said, what do I do? Uh, how do I get this job? And he said, uh, you have to just be yourself, because faculty jobs are forever, and you either want to be yourself for the next 20 years with these people if they hire you, um, or you're going to end up having to be the person you pretended to be at your job interview. <laughs> And I'm not that good of an actor. And so I decided to fuck it and just like, whatever. I'm going to do me. I have piercings and tattoos, and I will wear a suit at this interview, but you will never see me in a suit again. And it worked. <laughs> and I also decided to take that tack because around that time is when I started writing nonfiction. I decided to just be myself and to not hide anything and to believe that no one was going to read my work. 
which is a very elaborate delusion that is becoming increasingly difficult to uphold. But every time I write, I still tell myself, oh, girl, nobody's going to read this. You're fine. And in that, it's like I have a secret, and I'm putting that secret on the page. And my mom always likes to say a secret is something only one person knows. And so I allow myself to believe I am the only person who knows everything that I'm writing. And that allows me to be my most authentic and my truest self. And that's what really allows my voice to emerge. Um, It's also, I think, a way of allowing myself to be seen and allowing other people to be seen. I think when you find a writer who has a strong voice, you feel like you know that writer, even though you may only know what that a writer is allowing you to know. And you might also find moments of recognition for yourself. And so the other aspect of voice for me is about seeing and being seen. And that's all I have to say about that. feeling deeply relieved now because Roxanne I also basically trick myself into writing everything by saying no one is going to read this that was how I got myself to write my first book was convincing myself nobody's going to see this so it doesn't matter that this thing is not coming together and it was only about when reviews started to come in that I realized that that was really not at all true so I'm relieved to find someone else who says that um I'm going to come at the idea of voice in a slightly different way because I think often when we are talking about voice, we're really sort of conflating two things. We're really conflating style as in the style of the words you have on the page, the diction that you use, the language that you use, the structure and timing of your piece, and this sort of underlying ethos, for lack of a better word, of what you are writing, the substance of what you're writing. Um, I started off as a kid, as a poet, Um, I read a lot of Victorian things. I wrote a lot of flowery language. And when I started writing fiction, that came along with it. And so I sort of thought, well, this is my, this is my style. This is my voice. I'm, you know, I like elaborate metaphors. I like beautiful rhythm. And I, I still like all of those things. But as I wrote more and more, um, my style on the page changed. But I think that my voice came into focus. Because when I think about voice, what I really think of is not, that I use a lot of analogies and I use a lot of metaphors, which I do. But I think about it as what I'm actually concerned with in every piece I write, whether it is my fiction, novel or short story, whether it is a tweet that I'm sending, whether it's an email that I'm writing to somebody. um, I feel like the voice is sort of like Roxanne said, who I am and not just bound to the words that are on the page. So to um, make this a little bit more concrete, I wrote this novel, and um, when it came out, they, uh, my publisher told me that I should be on Twitter. And um, I actually really like Twitter, as it turns out, but I wasn't sure how much I should be myself on Twitter. And I thought, well, I don't want to be one of those writers who's always being very political, even though I am political myself. I thought, well, I'm going to not talk about politics. If any of you follow me on Twitter, you know that's going spectacularly not in that direction right now. 
Um, but I sort of thought, okay, I'm only going to talk about writing stuff. I'm not going to talk about my family. I'm not going to talk about, you know, my life. I'm not going to show you pictures of my food. I'm not, it's only going to be about writing. This is a literary Twitter account. And I soon realized that that was not possible for me because all of those other things that I mentioned, my family, my life, the stuff I eat, you know, the weird people that I eavesdrop on in the cafe, those are all parts of who I am. And they are things that I'm interested in. So what my voice actually comes down to, I think, is not about any particular character and is not about any particular rhetorical device, but is about empathy, is about understanding, is about trying to look at surfaces of things and then get under them. Um, and it's about the things that I care about. So it's about race. It's about intersections of identity. It's about women and the way that women get treated. Um, and so... All of those things now, I feel like, however my style changes, I feel like my voice is always going to somehow be on the frequency of those things. Um, I can say more about this, but I wanted to put out there the idea that voice, especially across different kinds of writing, is about a lot more than the words that you're using. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kevin. Uh, I'm short, but I'll dare to sit. Um, uh, <laughs> um, okay, uh, voice. It's such an interesting thing. I'm sorry, I'm thinking about Twitter because I love both you and Roxanne on Twitter, who I follow. Um, but Twitter uh, is an interesting place because it's only voice, but it's all voice. Um, so we can talk about that later. Um, because I, I really wanted to think about the way I don't really believe in voice. Um, I think... Unless it's plural. I mean, I think that we all have voices, both in our heads and in our lives. And in a way, I, I think what I like about Twitter, for instance, are the cacophony of voices. Uh, after the election, what I didn't like about Twitter was the cacophony of voices. Um, for, for me, I'm really interested in, I suppose, if we can make it plural, the voices we have and those we want to inhabit. Um, I think those are ways that voice can be useful. And obviously thinking about silencing and some of those questions, I, I do understand and like the history of voice. But I also would propose that for me, especially in thinking of poems, but also prose, that tone is very important. Um, and I try to talk about tone in my classes um, if I can um, and think about say jazz and the way that tone in jazz is distinct um, it's a way of improvising um, it gives us jazz gives us an example of an art that is constantly remaking itself uh, right in front of us um, but that also sometimes because it's wordless um, demands a certain rigorousness uh, a rigor of emotional testing and risk uh, and this in itself, I think, can be quite political. I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of Dante. It's a hard shift, I know. But um, especially because I got asked to write these poems um, responding to Robert Rauschenberg, the uh, painter artist, made 34 illustrations for Dante's Inferno. And uh, Robin Costa Lewis and I were responding to his paintings, which are responding to Dante, which someone read to him a canto at a time. And it was the same um, translation that I grew up with, the John Ciardi translation. Um, and I read Dante when I was a teenager in a class. Um, and 
Topeka, Kansas, of all places, um, which didn't feel quite like hell, but it was um, infernal in some ways, at least in the summer. Um, but having to go back to my, I think a lot about voice with him because I was thinking about Dante as a kind of contemporary um, when I've been rereading this book, which is here. It's all the covers off. Um, but I think of him as sort of incredibly relevant now. Um, he's writing, you know, almost 800 years ago, and yet he's still amazingly current. Um, and thinking about Dante as a contemporary, but that he's vengeful, he's political, he's petty, he's damning, but beautiful. He puts his enemies, you know, like eating each other's heads in the eighth circle. Um, but his sympathies sort of shine through. You know, he is almost tender to the lovers who die with each other or the suicides. Um, and I, there's something sort of pagan and passionate about it, but he's also trying to write the voice of his, you know, ancestors, his literary ancestors. Um, and I was thinking a lot about that, that Dante's putting himself in his own myth, and uh, when... <clears throat> the idea of voice as being sort of me and not me. And that's, I think, what Dante is trying to do. Um, he's also invested in, we were talking about, you were mentioning magic earlier, like magic and not magic. You know, and I think the voices he captures, the many people who speak, are really uh, important in this regard. Um, uh, I was going to read some, but I'll save that for later. I just wanted to point out that there are these uh, purple boa feathers behind all over the floor here. So someone in the panels before us had a really good time. <laughs> okay. I thought it was um, like a Muppet exploded. Or I don't know. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> it's that day. It's the third day of the conference. Anything goes. Um, all right, I'm just going to say a few words for my part. Um, the whole writer's voice thing drove me nuts when I was just starting to take my writing seriously. Um, in retrospect, I have no clue how I decided to go for a master's in creative writing because I'd never taken a poetry class. And at the time, I was just writing, and I, I thought I had a really distinctive voice, as one does in one's early 20s. And, um, and in some ways, maybe I did. But in others, I think it was just a hodgepodge of influences of people that I've read, um, prose writers, both poets and prose writers, who I loved and copied incessantly. And because um, that's how many of us start out, is um, with what we love. So in grad school workshops, um, through all my poems going through that rather rigorous ringer of rationality that uh, workshops can be, I felt like I dispensed with some of my more gratuitous tendencies and learned some accountability like to the reader and felt the read, you know, how not to make every poem a confessional poem, uh, that kind of thing. The most memorable advice I received from uh, Poetry Idol, who was the reason I uh, went to this program, was that I should uh, write fewer poems about boyfriends and more poems about lizards and Gandhi. That was, I had a poem with a lizard and Gandhi in it, that's why. But, um, but the reason I'm talking about this is I feel like learning, along with learning some solid skills and, and um, getting a wider variety of uh, exposure to poetry, I, I let myself lose some of my openness and my meanness, you know, all this crazy rule breaking I was doing 
or thought I was doing when I didn't know that there were rules or what the rules were. And um, what spun out of that is that not long after grad school, after being, um, again, exposed to all this wide world of poetry, I started thinking, what did I, like this middle-class suburban chick, have to say about anything ever? Um, when Why was my voice important among all these other voices with far more you know, compelling, urgent, culturally, culturally significant things to say? And went through a whole complex about this. And that stuck with me for years. I mean, I didn't want to write about my own life, nothing first person, confessional, you name it. Um, I was just wrapped up in my own and these maybe imaginary others' expectations about what I should or shouldn't write. And I, every time I sat down to write, I still felt those faces around the workshop table who were like, knowing what I was going to, knowing what they were going to say about what I was writing before I even wrote it. And it took like X number of years to, to get, to get out of that. So, um, you know, and feel and sound like myself again, whoever that is. Well, that's another story. But I also remember for years, people who I met would, um, who heard me read for the first time would go, oh, I can't believe your work is so pastoral. And, you know, I thought you were this hip urban poet type and they, like as if what we write is who we are, you know, in person, like where did that come from? So, um, Maybe the main problem I have with the whole writer's voice and unifying vision or project or theme book or being recognized in a certain way is I often feel like I sound like a different writer from one poem to the next because I write mostly at residencies and sometimes there's six months in between. And, you know, I'll have totally different obsessions or concerns or completely different style. And, um, and, in a different place. So in the manuscript for my next book, I have, um, when you look at the poems bumping up against each other, there'll be the, these short, tight, dark lyrics next to these this longish, talky hipster poem. Um, I did outgrow the confessional poems, I think, so I don't think there are any of those. But it kind of feels like, you know, multiple personalities within a single book and trying to arrange those in a manuscript is really challenging. Um, but I also chafe at the idea of having some sort of recognizable single style or a project or a subject because for me the excitement and the pure manic joy of writing is just sitting there and seeing what is going to happen and having no idea what's coming out of the brain. So I rarely start with an idea. I just want to see what's lurking there, put it down and then see what spins out. Um, so I have the opposite problem which is wondering whether my work is recognizable um, or coherent from one phase to the next and thinking, you know, what do we owe the reader, which is maybe something we can talk about. Um, as the years go by, it's felt like less and less of a problem, thank goodness. I still feel some pressure to talk about my work in a certain way or fit it into a framework um, or say, here, I write about this and you have to fill out those applications for things. Um, but is that my job to do that? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Um, just a couple other short things. I find it fascinating to think about what makes writers recognizable, especially really diverse writers and those who change drastically over time. I think one of my favorite examples is um, comparing Louise Glick's first books, first few books with her um, later work or current work where she does those tight, fierce, percussive, sometimes really angry, vivid poems, comparing those with like loose, sparse, abstract, mythological and you put them next to each other, you're like, holy shit, like, this is so different. And um, she even distances herself from her uh, the early writing and the introduction to the first four books of poems. So um, the last thing I wanted to mention um, 
is that if we're semi-neurotic, as some writers are, a few of them maybe are insecure, I don't know, uh, we will always find things to be anxious or worried about at whatever stage in our careers. So I always thought when I had a book come out, I would feel like bona fide and feel like, hey, you know, and I can write whatever I want and this is going to be great. But it was the opposite. Like I, I didn't have more confidence when I was alone on the page. I got blocked for several years because I had all these bizarre questions like, um, you know, what if the rest of my poems don't live up to the poems I've already written? You know, she wrote some good stuff, but what the hell is she doing now? It's totally different. And it got harder to submit work for journals. Like, oh, well, if they expected something, then I give them something else and it really sucks. And, um, you know, she won this prize and, oh, she's really awful now. I don't know, that kind of neurot neurotic stuff. So if a few people are reading my work, um, should I be writing about things that I think are more weighty, like, say, the political situation? Um, so Kevin's comment about what it, you know what is political speaking out is political. So there's different ways we can look at this and not get ourselves wrapped up um, in that kind of thinking. So again, we can second guess ourselves until the cows come home. Um, and I now know about myself that only rarely can I start with an idea of something that I want to write and execute it in a successful, living, breathing way that surprises either me or the reader. Um, the more freedom I give myself, the weirder and stronger and truer and more passionate I think the poems are. So um, ultimately, I think I have to just write what I want to write or what happens to come out and, and try to inhabit it fully and be grateful for it and then hopefully find a way to celebrate whatever that is. So thanks. Great. So um, I'm going to throw out some questions for um, our intrepid panelists, and just uh, we're just going to have a conversation. So the first question is going to be, how intentional are you about voice or style? I got to say, I love awkward silences too. So we're not we're not cutting those off. <laughs> All right. Well, I will go. Which I guess. Um, I, I guess I would say that I am not intentional when I start off, but I know when I'm finished um, because the, whatever it is that I'm writing, again, whether it's a tweet or if it's a piece of my novel or whatever, feels like it's what I wanted to say. In some ways, I think out loud on the page, and a lot of times I'll write something and I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't sit right with me. And a lot of times, again, it's not because of style. It's because um, it's not it's not in the right spirit. It's not generous or it's not, um, it, it in some way doesn't jive with this sort of like inner tuning fork of who I am. Um, and that's a very hard thing to define, but there's somehow, I think if you can get the idea of what kind of person you are, this is getting to be a very like sort of squishy comment, but, um, if you have a sense of what kind of person you are and, and what sort of things you believe in, there's sort of a, 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 that's your guidepost of whether that's your voice. And so for me, that is never something that I sit down to, but that's always the final test of whether I've gotten the piece right or not, or whether it's finished or not. I don't know how others feel. Um, I, I guess intention is tough because intentions go awry, um, thankfully, you know. Um, like, for instance, when I was thinking about hell, which I have been a lot since uh, November, um, I, I just think, well, uh, what does it look like now? I mean, does it look, does it look like now? 
Um, and so I tried, was trying really hard to like bring all these things in that were from the current moment, you know, uh, when I was trying to write these Dante-esque poems. And then I realized I, I can't make that work. You know, that, like trying really hard to do that is like the worst way to do that. Um, but instead I started thinking about, well, what does limbo look like? What does it mean to be in a place where people are are who aren't really being punished um, but they're there because they I don't know were too young and I started thinking about uh, Black Lives Matter I started thinking about Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice and I started thinking about what it would mean to walk into that room that's empty and kept um, and that wasn't so much intention as emotion and thinking about that transformation or that space as an actual space as opposed to uh, um, one that I had to fill with events or, or not even emotion but facts if that makes sense um, wasn't as effective as thinking about what does it mean to feel that way which is how I felt in some way having a young son um, worrying over but the way to express that worry was I guess more like empathy or sympathy or trying to conjure that voice uh, that was inside rather than trying to describe something. And I feel like intention, I, you can end up in a kind of, I mean to do this, I mean to say that, and it can still suck. I mean, that's, would be, you know, that's, you can't do that when you're trying to honor a memory. How do you write something as big as you want? And I think you have to go small in order to do that. Um, and voice is one tiny part of it, but the larger part is, I think, the empathy and the, the form. Um, you know, I, I love writers whose, whose voices are distinct and are a kind of turn them into a character. And if you read Gertrude Stein, you know you're reading Gertrude Stein. There's just nobody else who writes like her. Or a contemporary writer like uh, George Saunders, whose voice is so unique. But another approach is, an intentional approach, is to try to disappear from the writing, to try to write a prose that's like a window through which the, the, the reader sees stuff happening. So my intent usually as a writer is to try to be as try to be as, as invisible as possible. To try to be as invisible as possible. <laughs> uh, and I don't know that I always succeed at, at doing that, um, but that's what I try to do. So it's a sort of a different approach to voices, to not have a voice as an author so that the characters can have a voice and the story can have a voice. I don't know if that's possible, but that's the intent. It's what I try to do. Okay, um, so next question. As a recognized writer, uh, what are some of the expectations or pressures or responsibilities you feel when you uh, face the page? And how do you approach or subvert them? So expectations, pressures, or responsibilities. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Tell us. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, increasingly I feel a lot of pressure um, when I face the page because uh, when you have a book that does very well, people then expect everything you write after that book to be a replica of that book. And I've grown in the past seven years. So I hope the fuck I've grown. Um, and, and so... Uh, 
the thing is, no matter what you read of mine, you're going to recognize that I think as the work of Roxane Gay. I write f- across fiction, nonfiction, comics, film, and it's all there. Like, my voice is there. Uh, but when I face the page, I always want to write what I want to write. I don't want to think about audience, but I do feel a certain amount of pressure increasingly to write to make sure I'm not disappointing the people who have only read Bad Feminist. Like, a lot of people don't even know I'm a fiction writer first, which is, it is the way it is. It just, it is, you know, I can't control that. Uh, So, it's just a big challenge. And when I read the work back to myself and it doesn't sound right or feel right, I know that I'm trying too hard to fulfill some amorphous expectations that I'm assuming the reader has, and that's when I know I have to go back and change it. Uh, In the end, I always change it to make sure that I'm just writing what I want to write at this point in time and trusting my readership to come along with me and to appreciate that I'm growing rather than expecting me to do the same old thing over and over. I hope that I'm writing a better essay today than I did. in 2010 and so ultimately that's what I hold on to in terms of uh, making sure that my voice is consistent in that it's recognizable but also making sure that I'm growing and changing and trying new things I, I feel similarly in that I'm, I had a first novel come out and, and do fairly well and I have a second novel that's coming out and part of my concern is well it takes place in a different era. There are different kinds of characters. The first book was about a mixed-race family. The second book, most of the main characters are white. Um, you know, there are similar concerns underlying them, but I sort of thought, okay, are the first book's readers going to follow along to the second book? Um, and I think there's a lot of trust there, not only in yourself, but um, as Roxanne is saying, in the reader, that the reader is going to sort of come along with you. Um, but I think that um, part of that is the same for anything that you write, is that you are aware that there is going to be a reader, but you can't think about that while you're doing the writing, which is the sort of impossible task of not thinking about how it's going to be received. And that's harder and harder, I think, if, you, um, if you've put work out in the world and you have a dialogue with readers in some public way, um, to not think about what they're going to think um, to think about whether this is what you want to be writing about. And I wish I had an easy answer for that. Um, I'm very bad at sort of pulling down the blinds and not, you know, sort of like not letting the eyes of the world in and not letting them into my head. But um, again, what I keep going back to is what, you know, to ask myself, what is what I'm really concerned with in in this story? You know, if this is really a story about um you know, secrets that people have or about the difficulties of communication. And I feel like that's the thread that sort of when I read it, if it feels right to me, it's usually because I've tapped into that sort of a larger underlying concern. I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, maybe I have something to say. Um, I, it's funny because I just... Uh, lost my train of thought um, I just uh, I'm finishing a nonfiction book and I think that is so different uh, I was thinking about what you were saying about what you're afraid of to me it's not like um, being known or something which for a poet is you know doesn't matter much um, but it's much more to me there was a moment I've been working on it for four or five years and it's about liars and hoaxes and um, they seemed all around uh, 
when I was finishing the book, a one a week, you know, three a week now. Um, and I, I started, that started intruding more than anything. It was almost the world, but then also the stack of research I had done and the past drafts, and I would have to go away, you know, and just take off for a few days. And I felt like that was more the competing voices, the sort of other writers, the other um, noise, um, when noise can be really fruitful, I think, but sometimes it can get in the way, especially of finishing and finding, if not your voice, then the tone that you want to strike. Um, and when I first started this book, the tone was really sort of glib and, and you know, like mocking. And I, I found that by stepping back just a hair and not showing all my cards and just relating what, say, crazy story happened, um, in P.T. Barnum or whatever, it was a way of thinking about it um, and not showing your cards and then revealing sort of more uh, a mirror that you could see us in. Um, and so that, that is hard to do, to step back when you, you have a strong feeling about a thing, especially in a nonfiction piece. How do you describe so well that it's clear what your tone is, but you're not revealing all? Um, what's the worst advice you've gotten about uh, how to sound or who to be as a writer? <laughs> well, no. Um, you know, the worst advice I've gotten is the worst advice I think a lot of women and marginalized writers have gotten, which is uh, I've had many people tell me to write more about race when I write about race all the time. Uh, so I don't know how much more I could do it. But when I get... The worst advice I ever get, and I get it consistently, is to um, write only about identity, as if I'm incapable of writing anything else. And that's incredibly frustrating. Uh, a lot of times, women are only allowed to be experts on women, and people of color are only allowed to be experts on diversity and marginalization. And uh, people seem to think that that's the magic ticket to publishing. And um, it's incredibly offensive, and it's incredibly pervasive. And so I always try to work against that and offer the kinds of insights on the issues that matter to me um, that I want to offer regardless of what people are expecting. Um, so that's what I'm always working against. I feel like oftentimes adv advice that I get is not often couched as advice and is couched more as expectations or sort of um, one of my favorite things is when people come up to me at conferences and events and they say, you know, I read your novel and I thought that you'd be this really serious kind of angry person and you seem really nice and actually kind of funny. Um, and I, I kind of like the idea that they had an idea of what I should be writing about. And likewise, a, a lot of times it's not advice, but I get people saying, you know, you seem to have a lot of strong opinions, especially for an Asian woman. And I go, yep. We sure do. Um, and so I guess that's not so much advice as much as sort of fighting against what people expect. And I think that takes, um, uh, in some ways, a lot of faith in yourself to believe that what you have is fine, regardless of whether it's what people thought you were going to be writing. And so I think that to a certain extent I write against that on purpose a little bit. But it's also, I think, part of 
it's maybe it's part of the long-term group work of sort of dispelling the notions that there are certain kinds of writers that like Asian writers are going to write about you know, filial piety and, um, I don't know, very delicate rituals and that, you know, black women are going to write angry voices or whatever all the stereotypes are. I think that the more writers there are who are embracing what they want to write, the more we will see that many writers write many different kinds of things. And maybe it won't be such a surprise when you get someone who isn't doing what you thought their group was supposed to do. I think a lot of the fiction writers are advised by agents and publishers to write for a market, to write to a market, and that's about the worst advice you could possibly get as a writer. It's a, it's a prescription for being a, for being a bad writer. Um, I have a friend who's uh, it's actually here. He's a, he's a formalist poet. He's been a formalist poet since he was a, a teenager when he had met, uh, had met W.H. Auden at a young age and had started writing formalist poems. And he wrote all through the 70s, he kept writing these formalist poems, these villanelles and these sestinas, which nobody would touch, <laughs> nobody in a million years. So. But he just kept writing what was his work. And I think he's had like six books out in the last seven years because the world changed and the world came back around to him and got interested in formalist, um, in formalist poetry. So, you know, you find, you write what you need to write. You don't ever write for a market. I want to add something else, and I'm sort of thinking this through as I go, which is that, um, especially I think for for writers of color, um, especially if your ethnicity or your background is sort of cued in your name, a lot of times I think the the expectations start even before people open the book. And so I, I was I was thinking about you know your, your, the comment about sort of b- disappearing into a voice into a character, and I was thinking oh I've never I had never thought about that before, and I think one of the reasons is that's not, not always an option for everyone. If I you know with the name Celeste Ng, which I think telegraphs immediately that I am non-white, start writing about characters, and there are no. Asian people, or there are no people of color in the book, people start to wonder, well, how does she know this? How does she, is that okay? Um, and it works the other direction too. You know, if you see the author's biography um, and you start looking, reading their book and it doesn't match what your perception of that group's voice is going to be, you never have the option, I think, to try and say, oh, and this is pure ventriloquism. This is, this is not me at all. There's always going to be that sort of uneasy interaction between who you you are as an author, who the reader perceives you to be as an author, and who your characters are on the page. And at some point, I think that the, the voice that ends up working for you is the place that sort of allows you to um, inhabit both of those, or the place where those two things sort of intersect. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out what that is, but I think when we talk about advice, again, it's advice is always what people think you should be doing. And this is the cliche, but I don't think that anybody can know what you should be doing other than you. Great. Well, I think we'll open it up to some audience questions, if you have some. Question in the back. Yes, you in the hat. Sorry? Maybe later. Are there questions about content? Are there questions? Yes. Hi, over here. Your 
Okay, so the question is, what advice do you have for um, keeping your voice alive when you're making the transition from one genre to another genre, or one form to another? <laughs> you guys you. are fantastic. Um, you know, the key thing is to remember that narrative is narrative, and there a lot of people, I mean, there, there is a difference between fiction and nonfiction, unlike some people believe uh, <laughs> there are two different genres. Um, but you just have to focus on storytelling. I don't overthink it. I think focus just on storytelling and let the story carry you. And I don't mean that in a woo-woo type of way, uh, because I'm not a woo-woo type of person. And yet, when I write, a lot of times people ask me, I visit a lot of universities, and I actually teach at a university, and people ask me, you know, what are my craft uh, habits? And I don't, I can't articulate them very well, because I sit and I write. And I do think a lot about my writing, and I do read a lot and learn and, and so on. But when I just sit and write, my best writing comes when I just don't think. I just write. And I think you don't want to think because one of the biggest challenges is that you are worried about how to carry your voice over. I don't think you need to worry. I think if you just relax, um, which is easier said than done, and just write the story you want to write, trust yourself and trust your craft and trust that your voice is going to come through in what you're doing. It's, there's not a, a, a thing that you can do. There's not a formula that you can apply to ensure that you're going to make that transition. But I think that you are the only person who can narrate the world like you, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, and so you just have to trust in that. <laughs> I, lo I love what you said. That's great. Um, I would add sort of a lyric perspective um, just because I came from poetry and uh, write essays, and I've taught, say, the lyric essay, a form that I think is uh, some might just call it an essay or some might call it a prose poem. What's interesting to me is it confounds some of our notions of genre, though not of sort of truth and nonfiction, but just of genre. And so, I don't know, I, I think also by starting with thinking of voice, you might end up in a tougher place than if you start thinking about what do I need to say. And I think the harder thing can be you can get to a point in a poem or in one's practice where you get good enough, you could probably put anything in a poem. And knowing what is better as an essay is more the question. Like, how do I decide on what is, you know, an essay? Because, you know, that you have to make choices of. And for me, um, that sort of sustained examination is what the essay can do. It's an attempt. It's a try. Um, in a way that a poem um, can be open-ended and unresolved and musical, and its resolution can be musical. Now, you can steal some of that for an essay, I think, um, especially um, the best, I think, um, some of my favorite essays are by poets, um, whether it's Langston Hughes' writing, sort of manifesto, or Gwendolyn Brooks' novel is, like, incredible. Um, and how do you kind of pick? Um, and, you know, I think you have to do the picking and decide and then also go with the choice. And, you know, maybe later you can change it if it's not hitting exactly right. But I, I think that trusting that instinct is part of uh, the process. Next question, right here in the front. Um, 
sometimes turn into noise or into part, part of the world that distracts you. So how does one balance your politics, your opinions with the noise that is densely cut through your writing? That's my first question. And the second one is if you're writing a character with you would gain or disagree with entirely and absolutely despise, I don't know, white supremacy or someone, um, how do you cut through the noise of your personal politics to write Hmm. Long question, very good, uh, complicated question. Um, is I hope I can summarize this properly. I hope you heard it if I don't summarize it quite properly. But um, if you have strong political beliefs, how do you um, cut through the noise of, of these beliefs or what's happening in the world to write um, you know, in a, in a true manner? And also, if you're writing about a character who you have very strong feelings about, uh, someone very strong negative feelings about, how do you cut through those to portray your character in a, um, in a true and vivid manner? Is that about right? Okay. Kevin just pushed the microphone in front of me and looked at me with a big grin, so I guess I'm going to start with this one. Um, I mean, although I, I have, I'm realizing, very strong political opinions, I don't start with them when I come to write fiction. Um, for me, it always begins in character, and I think character is really, I think, the answer to both parts of your question for me. Um, that if I'm, if I'm, right now it's very noisy uh, in my brain and I think in the world. It's really hard to tune out sort of what's happening politically. And for me, um, these are not political abstractions. Like, these are things that affect me personally and many people that I know. And so it's been very hard to do that. And that might be part of the reason that I'm having trouble getting started on something new, um, which I'm supposed to be doing right now. But I think part of that is that um, it, the reason that, that it's hard to tune out that noise is that the things that are happening right now are relevant to my work. And so I want to push back a, a little bit on the idea that we need to keep politics and art separate because art is always political. And I think that looking back at the work that I've done in fiction, there is a political bent to it, even though I did not purposely go and weave that in there. And so I, um, part of it, I think, is to root all of this in story and in character. And this gets to the second part of your question, which is that if the story that I'm writing starts to become political and it's still true to the story and it's still true to the characters, then it's not noise anymore. That's signal that needs to find its way into the story. And likewise, if I'm writing a character that I have huge philosophical or moral disagreements with, I really don't think I have business writing that character unless there is some way that I can extend them empathy, which doesn't mean that I like them and it doesn't mean that I understand, it doesn't mean that I agree with them, but it means that I can at least see where they're coming from, even if I think that they are pointed in completely the wrong direction. And so if I'm writing a character and I find that I have no window into them and I don't understand them, then the piece is not done. Then I haven't gotten that character right and there is more to that character that I need to find out or else I am doing this project wrong. And so I think that it, so I'm speaking as a fiction writer, but I think that at a certain point, issues of voice become issues of theme and issues of craft. And that the craft is sort of what allows you to separate out, sort of as you're saying, the noise from the signal. Because we think of politics, again, as being this other thing and we're making our art in the bubble, I, I think that mer that membrane is really permeable. And what the craft says, yes, this makes sense for the character, this makes sense for this plot, that's how you figure out what the signal is versus the noise. Let's keep going. Yeah, keep, keep, that was great yeah. answers. Yeah. Great. Other questions? <laughs> right there. 
sorry. Pink flannel. Oh, yes. Hi. Uh, my question is about other uh, characters, especially women. Uh, how do you so the question is how do you create an unlikable character that's likable enough that you want to hang out with the character but maintains the unlikability you know, I think that's not necessarily the right question. I don't think that the reader has to... I don't think you have to have empathy for an unlikable character. I don't think that's the question at all. Uh, I think you just have to create an unlikable character that's readable, uh, a character that's nuanced, that's well-drawn. It's important to remember that you're creating a character and not a caricature. No one is any one thing, including your villains. Um, but, you know, I mean... You can have empathy for your character by just recognizing that there's no right or wrong way to be in the world, necessarily. And it's okay for your character to be unlikable. Uh, you don't, the reader doesn't ever have to like her. There are plenty of unlikable characters that I have followed through. The, the one that always comes to mind first is Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. That book is extraordinary and very readable and very repulsive. I don't ever feel charmed or interested in Patrick Bateman, um, but I was willing to read. And um, I so just focus on writing a good character and... Uh, the empathy, I think, will come once you get there. Yeah, my, I can't see you, but my last character was a was a mass shooter, so <laughs> I didn't I didn't feel empathy. Well, I did feel empathy. I actually kind of loved that character, um, but I loved his failings and I loved the trauma that he was going through, and I loved the anguish that he was feeling and I was able to write him in a way that felt true to to him as a character but it didn't mean I liked him as a as a as a character um I liked writing him uh, but I, didn't, I certainly didn't want him to be a likable character so I'm really just going to echo what others have said you just have to pay attention to your character and care about the character and not create a caricature, as Roxanne said. And I'll add one more thing that I think it's important to be, it, to distinguish between likability and being interesting. Um, we will, you know, there are people that we like and you'll, you'll go anywhere with them because you like them. But there are people who are horrible but are super interesting and you kind of just want to watch their train wreck. And that's okay, too. You don't have to like all of your characters, but it's always important that, they could be interesting. I mean, some, if you think about some of the, like the Real Housewives shows, for example, a lot of times you don't want to see those people. You don't want to. You don't like them, but it's fascinating to watch them blow up their world, basically. Other questions here in the front. Well, thank you. <laughs> So the question is, um, how do you push back if you're being told by an agent or an editor that you do have to make some changes to write for the market in some way? 
get a different agent? <laughs> no, really. Yeah. If your agent, right? If your agent doesn't believe in you and believe in your voice, then that's not the right agent for your work. Um, my agent is wonderful and follows me down. Like I recently had to pull a book contract and she didn't question it for one single second. She was like, Amazing. yep, we'll just give them the money back. And you need an agent who's going to follow you down the road like that. Uh, because they knew who you were when they signed up, signed you up. If a book contract has already been signed, the book contract has already been signed. So they can't make you change the project that they bought. Um, we live in the real world, though. And sometimes you have to compromise because you need to pay rent and electricity and so on. So I think it's important to stand your ground and not cater to markets. But I also think that we live in the real world where sometimes you do have to make those compromises. So you have to decide what, how much of this battle are you willing to fight? How much of this battle can you afford to fight? Uh, and you also just, I think... Write as well as you can in the ways that you can and articulate that to your editor because if you build it, they will come. And if you're also lucky, because there are a lot of people building really great things and no one's coming. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm 14. Uh, you just... Uh, I think it's more important to stay true to yourself unless you really have to sell out. And in which case, sell out. It's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, how much money are we talking? I think that's... A, as the poet on the panel, we don't have this problem. I do have an agent, but... Um, I think that, you know, I think of a book like Citizen, you know, is that a book you would expect to have been a bestseller? You know, it's a bestseller because it's true to its vision. And it's such a complete vision. And I think this idea of building a world um, or a universe, I think, is very important. And um, you have to do that whether you're doing a uh, small clutch of poems or you're doing, you know, a massive novel. I mean, uh, we, you can go down the list of projects that seem unlikely that, of course, we all love and think are great. Um, from Harry Potter to, you know... Um, citizen or something. So I, I think you have to absolutely be true to that. And I don't know, I tend to write things first and then show them. So there's not as much confusion about what they're getting, um, even if it's write 30 pages, you know. So I think if someone's trying, I weirdly got in a thing with my second book of poetry was about Jean-Michel Basquiat. Um, and it was like a 350 page poem about Basquiat and his influences. I don't know why I thought everyone would just run to buy it, but um, <laughs> that's dead black painter. Um, but, uh, you know, I met with someone at a house who was like, maybe turn some prose and like changing like my weird, crazy vision. And, you know, it never worked out. The person left. It wasn't ever good. Um, what, and I never really tried very hard to change it, but there was this kind of notion and, you know, I wasn't far enough along to be able to say, no, it's going to be a, this epic weird thing. Um, but now, you know, it is, and there, you can write other things later that are different if, if, but you have to be true not only to yourself, but to that book or project. Brother in the blue shirt has tried from yeah. So, I'm sure you've all read lots of stories. Have you ever felt, or have you ever felt that, laid down the line, you feel embarrassed about 
Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> I kind of just did a panel about that on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, the question is, do you ever feel embarrassment about your early works? No, never, right? <laughs> Anybody? I don't feel one ounce of embarrassment for anything I've ever written because that's the writer I was at that time. And, yeah, I wrote some really dumb shit at 18. Uh, but I was 18. And, man, she tried really hard. I, 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 would, I, I would second that. I, I don't ever feel any embarrassment either. I do feel shame <laughs> for very early works. I, I, I agree with Roxanne. I don't, I don't feel any... Embarrassment is not the right word, and I definitely don't feel shame about it but I, I think I feel maybe sympathy is maybe a better word for works that I wrote um, I have one of those moms who saved a lot of my old stuff and then periodically she cleans out her um, her storage unit and is like here you need to take this stuff and so I find things that I wrote you know stories that I wrote at age 15 after reading a lot of Russian plays and then also reading a lot of like Sartre and, and I'm like okay yeah, yeah again like she tried really hard but I, I feel like it's, it's as if you were looking at the work of like a four-year-old. You wouldn't say, man, that four-year-old was stupid and didn't know how to spell. You'd be like, oh, you were trying something really hard there, and then that part where the princess turned into a potato. Good imagination. You know, I think that's how I look at my previous self, is like, hopefully I am growing. And if I look back at stuff and I go, that was brilliant, and I love it, and that was a peak, then I'm doing something wrong. And you need to be developing. I feel like you need to be seeing a little bit farther than your older works are. Are you going to say shame? I don't feel shame. Um, I guess I, I think that um, it depends on how old the works are. Like if it's last week, then you do feel a bit more like, man, I was hitting it. Because when you're writing it, you're like, this is the one. And then you like later. But I think that's a good sign, right? You know, that's a sign that you have a, an eye and that you can step back. I think the harder thing to do is when you're in the midst of something, like a big project, and you're like, oh, my God, I'm in the middle of the river, and I can't see the other side. I think that is way harder to me than something that you're not going to, that you wrote, and maybe publish you don't love as much, or you're, you know, right, and you're not going to publish. I mean, that's not as big a thing to me as if you're in the middle, and you feel that despair, um, or am I ever going to finish? That's a strange feeling. Um, but it's usually the feeling right before you tear it apart and put it back together in a much better way. And I think that, to me, is much more scary in the process is, you know, you're writing a, a big, long book, and there you are on the precipice, and you know that it's fine, but it's not good, if you know what I mean. And how do you have that courage? And I, I think you have to do little tricks like, well, I saved it separately, or here's the printout. I can always go back to that. But, you know, never do you. You always, like, I think that ripping apart and having that courage, that's what separates something from being kind of good from being, you know, really good, is that you're fearless. Um, or rather, you get scared and you go past it. Great. Um, question right
Okay, we have just a few minutes for one more quick question. There's one right in the back. Yes. So the question that we have like three minutes for is how do you keep how do you have courage to write really dark stuff and keep going when uh, when we're getting really disturbing? Oh, great question. Um, Michael Shabon has a great essay um, in which he talks about writing a golem character, which is this um, monster in Jewish mythology. But um, he basically suggests that like if you're writing and you are not afraid, you're not like he's he's like that's when I need to be afraid or else this thing is not going to come alive. Um, the tricks of pretending that no one is going to read it is a good one. If you can't fool yourself that way, um, I'm not sure what to do. But I think that it's sort of like if you're like you have to write into the fear. It's sort of like you you steer into the skid. A lot of times that is what is going to allow you to do it well. Um, I guess what I basically said to you was suck it up and do it, which is not super helpful advice. But I mean, take it, try and think of it as a sign that you're maybe on the right track to where you're going and try and write for yourself first and nobody ever has to see it if if you don't want them to. I also think humor is a good um, palliative for both the process, if you can keep a sense of humor about the process, but also even in like a dark character, if, if the character's only mean, then there's no, I mean, I think that's sort of the American psycho edge, isn't it? It's like this strange, creepy, you know, irony. I think some of those things can help you work through it. Um, and sometimes you realize that later, uh, uh, where the character's danger lies is maybe that it's it is a little not funny haha but has this kind of humor that can kind of guide you in the tragedy and make it more uh, palatable for readers as well as yourself uh, most of my writing is pretty dark uh, when my first when my short story collection was first being shopped a lot of editors said I wanted to die after reading this it's so depressing and I was like yes that's exactly what I was going for and so I think sometimes you just have to commit to the premise you have to go full Darth Vader and give in to the dark side and it can be scary but what I do is I write to that point of repulsion and horror and then decide okay this is where I'm going to stay this is where it starts and um, like as dark as I think I am I'm then like what's even more fucked up and that's actually how I wrote my novel An Untamed State which has a really bad man in it I thought, what's the worst thing I can imagine? And then I thought, okay, what's worse than that? And I keep challenging myself, and I do that right up until the point of absurdity. And then I pull back. Yeah, I think there's a, a certain amount of, and, and this may say it sounds self-serving for a novelist, but there's a certain amount of, of, of guts and courage that's necessary to write a novel. You just have to be willing to write things that are, that are, that are frightening and, to, and to, to keep to keep going with them. But the very act of a novel itself, committing a year or two years to a narrative that you don't know is where it's going or if it's going to complete itself in a successful way, I mean, you have to have a lot of guts to really want to, want to do that. So that's what you have to sort of foster in yourself, that kind of courage. That's all we have time for. I like ending on the, the full Darth, Darth Vader note. I hope you feel emboldened to write whatever the hell you want. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.